You're supposed to stand and give me some respect. <laughs> you too. <laughs> I'm here to just... Is there any trouble on this EQ? I'm here to destroy any preconception you have of what preaching should be. <laughs> just relax. I'm just wait, waiting for a message. <laughs> How much patience do you have? <laughs> How much faith do you have? <laughs> you guys are doing good. You sobered up in 24 hours. <laughs> Anybody else want to come up in to the danger zone before? I always like to start with an illustration. <laughs> you know, in a real church, the preacher climbs up a circular stairway and stands in front of a huge pulpit way up in the air with robes. But this isn't a real church. This is a Baptist church. Why are you happy? feel like Davy Crockett, you just stare him down. <laughs> I'm just... 
I just want to demonstrate to you, or not, that the Lord's presence and His power and His joy is a sheer gift and has absolutely nothing to do with us. It has absolutely nothing to do with my introduction or my preaching or my anything. In fact, I'm at total at a loss why I'm standing here. Because <laughs> I just like to sit and relax and enjoy the presence of God like everybody else. So I will. <laughs> I need a real pulpit. Boy, come to church with polished black shoes. <laughs> now, now, nowadays, real teenage saints come with bare feet. <laughs> Okay, how many of you have really serious prayer requests tonight? Church is serious business. You come with real needs. I'm actually, I'm actually aware of that. <laughs> I'm actually very aware that a lot of you are going through really tough stuff. A lot of pain, a lot of issues, and a lot of needs. And Boy, that got quiet. <sighs> And if, and if I get too lighthearted too soon, because of that, a certain number of you will walk out. Because you came to get your needs fixed, and instead they're just having a party up front. How can you possibly get your... How can... 
I would have given a message, but... <laughs> How can you possibly get your needs met if you just chill and have a party? That raises a lot of theological issues. <laughs> How exactly do we get our needs met? A lot of you have come here tonight hoping, well, if you weren't here last night, if you were here last night, you realize there's no hope. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> See, only three have walked out so far. So. It's a test. It's a test just to find out if you're willing to stick it out long enough to see what Jesus is really saying. And just throw Jesus out because people are too excessively happy. So, so I'm trying to understand the theology. I don't like Jesus because he makes people happy. <laughs> and I especially don't like him because he makes them happy and not me. <sighs> and I'm, I'm even madder at God because... He took care of their problem and not mine, and I'm leaving the church with the same problem. I don't think I'll ever come back. Does that connect with anybody? Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to understand the theology. This church is not big enough for God and me both. <laughs> it's either me or him, but not both. <laughs> if he comes, I'm out of here. <laughs> if he stays away, I'm safe. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to go to a church where everybody wrecks my mood with joy. <laughs> I came here to stew in a big kettle of doubt. <laughs> but we all have needs. And I, real needs. And just as an example of that, I got an email, just got an email. I get emails from all over the world every day with urgent, urgent, desperate prayer requests. I, I get hundreds of them, thousands of them. And this is one of the most critical, urgent ones I've ever seen. 
This lady writes, I want a husband. But I have some criteria. <laughs> and I want you to pray with me. And I want you to send it to your Irish intercessors. <laughs> because I believe God for a man like this. <laughs> I have 17 points. <laughs> We're This is why we have intercessory teams, you know, who, who fast and pray. <laughs> First point, I want a husband who is a fair person. Okay, that's fair. Number two, four years gap to me. I want a husband four years older than me. Number three, Height, same or more. Okay. It's narrowing down. A person with an evangelical ministry calling. Okay, that's good. Dark eyes. Number six. Straight hair that falls down. <laughs> You, th you think I'm kidding. <laughs> this is the printout of my email. So I didn't make this up. <laughs> Number seven, slim and body built. <laughs> Sensitive person to the move of God. Spends more time in the word and prayer. Who is good in worship leading. Number 11, must not wear glasses. <laughs> Who loves nature, animals, and birds. <laughs> Has a sharp and clear complexion. <laughs> Middle class family. <laughs> Will support me in ministry. <laughs> Who loves children and wants to have four of them. <laughs> a person who seeks God's will first. <laughs> Ah, oh, perfect. <laughs> Coming right up. <laughs> well, she's in a lot of... She's in a lot of need. The Bible says, let your request be made known to the Lord. Any... Anybody else with any prayer requests here? <laughs> I want to take care of the most serious ones first. 
Now, to her heart and her situation, that is a very serious prayer request. It really is. But I also get requests like this. I want to be a missionary. I've been called to be a missionary all my life. My husband and I just were planning on leaving this year. But my nine-year-old son was out swinging, and he fell off the swing, and the swing fell apart, and the board hit him in the back of the neck and paralyzed him, weights down. And he's been in intensive care for, was in, for nine months. And two years later, he still can't move. But he wants to be a missionary. That's the kind I mostly get every day. Every single day. Really? way beyond the kind of request that we usually get in a prayer line, you know, in a church service. My father's been 50 years old, and he's had, he's in total dementia. He's lost all body functions. Uh, just recently got an email. My mother has covered with cancer, the most advanced cancer anybody has seen in the Western world, her whole body is just rotten, open sores, just green pus everywhere. You know, just big gaping holes in her body. Doctors have never seen anything like it. I get these every day. Now, it's interesting to me, like last night, we have a meeting where... We're just thrilled with God and we just in, <laughs> enjoying his humor and everything for and a certain number of people walk out. They always do. They've already judged God and given up on him because they saw too much lightheartedness and joy. They, they tossed him. They're mad at God. They're mad at the church. They're mad at the preacher. They're mad at the whole environment. They're mad at the whole atmosphere. They can't stand it because they're really, really, really upset about deep, deep issues in their life. And they just reject, walk out. God has no right to be happy, neither does anyone else as long as I'm in this situation. Well, in 2009, there was a point in time when doctors gave me exactly two weeks to live. I told Heidi to call in all, your, all his closest friends and family. 30 people flew in from all over the world to Mozambique to say goodbye. I couldn't tie my shoes. I couldn't put on flip-flops. I couldn't brush my teeth. I couldn't take a shower. I was, had, 
I had lost 100% of my memory for three solid months, and my brain was shutting down with dementia and strokes, and I was going to stop being able to even swallow and just die in a few weeks. And on top of that, I got the toughest, strongest, most powerful demonic attack from the Middle East that Bob Jones had ever seen, designed to take not only me down, but Heidi and Iris Ministries and our whole entire ministry. And I ended up having to fight that force for two years. But people walk out of meetings before having any idea what I've been through or what most people have been through. And they judge the whole movement and they judge the Holy Spirit and they judge the church and they write us off because they don't know the price that Jesus paid to give us joy. They don't understand the depth of the victory. The value of what only God can do. And they think it's cheap. And they think they can do without it. And they think it's a distraction. They think they have a right to think badly of God. So, if anybody knows me for any length of time, they know that I, I like to be, on the one hand, the littlest kid in the room, and on the other hand, the most serious person in the room at the same time on the same day, in the same meeting. I'd like to comprehend what's going on spiritually more than anybody I know, understand more theologically, understand more of what God's doing, just understand life better than anybody I know. And on the other hand, just be the most carefree person around <laughs> at the same time. It'd be terrible if it were just one or the other. And Christians often are trying to be one or the other. Some Christians are really trying to just get all levity out of their system, take the Christian life as seriously as they can, just look down on everything that's even slightly enjoyable. And there's other people that just have a party, trying to have a party, not really having it, but trying to have a party, but just not, not getting it.
So I just, in these two meetings, I just wanted to, just, just as an object lesson, demonstrate both extremes. And then stir the pot. <laughs> actually, actually, the issues of life and death and righteousness and the judgment to come and all are unspeakably serious. I have no idea why most preachers spend most of the time talking about how to get earthly blessings. It's as though they think God is just this tremendous miracle machine that can just bless our life on earth and help us make this world the best place we can make it and bring heaven down to this earth and just concentrate on this world. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound reasonable? Doesn't that sound attractive you know to the outside world but you know what when you're almost when you're totally brain damaged and you've got two weeks to live do you know how attractive this world looks at that point <sighs> do you know how exciting it is to at the thought of climbing a mountain when you're going to be dead in two weeks Do you know how attractive vacations in Europe and, and adventures around the world and backpacking to Nepal and, and all these fun things that youth want to do seems when you're old and tired and sick and about to die? But when you really think about it, you're all going to be dead in a very short time. <laughs> Just want to start the meeting on an upbeat note. Most people's idea of a good time is a, t a situation where there's so much entertainment and so much humor and so much fun and such great music and such great everything that you don't even worry about tomorrow or think about death or we're just having just a wonderful time with each other tonight. But that's not really the final goal, I don't think, of a Christian meeting. I think the final goal of a Christian meeting is more like understanding the full depth and gravity of our situation. Average lifespan is 70 years. It's not a very long time. You're all going to be dead. The oldest person alive just died recently, 114 When I think of Methuselah at over 900 years, <laughs> when I think of some of the greatest men in history, some of the most influential 
theological pillars of history who died in their 20s and 30s, I'm realizing life is very, 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 very short. Now, most kids don't even think about it. I did. I was really weird. <sighs> when I was seven years old and nine years old and ten years old, the main thing I thought about was what's going to happen to me when I die. Is that what they discuss at school all day? <sighs> you know, evangelism has nearly totally evaporated out of the renewal. If anybody gets saved, it's almost accidental. That should be the subject that's on everybody's minds. Not just your getting saved, but getting as many people saved as possible. That's actually the only real issue there is that matters. Like Paul says, in Philippians, you know, I, I, he says, I count all things lost for the sake of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And, and he goes through this list of things that, that is worth so much. You know, sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. And, but the end of that list, at the end of the paragraph, he says, so that somehow, somehow, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's the issue. That's the issues that should concern and consume every human being on earth. Never mind, never mind blessings. Never mind money. Never mind what house you live in. Never mind whether you're married or not. Never mind compared to the issue of attaining to the resurrection from the dead. When's the last time you heard a pure evangelistic message designed to save people from hell? I know this Baptist church probably a lot of times. <laughs> I was saved in a Baptist church. I was nine years old. Glenn Hicks, Taipei, Taiwan. 1956. He preached his guts out. He was pouring with sweat. He drenched his microphone. <laughs> and I was the only person who responded. I was a nine-year-old kid. I just ran forward, bawling my eyes out. I was so convicted I thought I was going to die. <sighs> All these people, it's just... One little missionary kid, the only one who responds. <sighs> Same thing to happen to Heidi. The evangelist preached his heart out. 
500 Indians on a reservation in Mississippi. Just this one little white girl with blonde hair comes racing forward, bawling her eyes out. All the Indians just sat there. (laughs) That's really the main issue. I don't know what happened to the issue. Most of the preaching now... I'm glad this is not being videotaped. (laughs) It's about how to get God's power working for us and how we can transform this earth and how we can get as blessed as possible down here and how we can be honored and king's kids and have maximum influence in society and be the head and not the tail and take control and don't get pushed around anymore. We church, should, we, we in the church should just take over the world. I don't have any desire to take over the world whatsoever. I have a desire to get to heaven, which is another place. I'll pay whatever price it takes to get there. Jesus said, don't love the world or anything in it. If you love the world or anything in it, the love of the Father is not in you. I love the cheery sayings of Jesus. (laughs) Paul tells us to set your minds on the things above, not on the things on earth. Where the things that are seen are temporary and the things that are unseen are eternal. So why is so much preaching about the things that are seen? It's a complete mystery. Now, most people don't think they're quite at the edge of death. So it's not so urgent. How many of you tonight are just urgently concerned about the fragility of your life? Your life is in God's hands. Every breath you take is a gift. It can end at any second. It's purely up to his choice. You are so on the edge. Every one of you are so on the edge of eternity. And what you should be thinking about all the time is what kind of eternity are you going to have? your retirement plan, your investment plan, your future, your security of your company job, uh, the economy, the recession, these things don't compare, they don't factor, they don't register on the Richter scale in any way compared to the gravity of the issue of what kind of eternity are you going to have.
I'm not talking just about whether you're going to heaven or hell. I'm talking about how great a resurrection do you want? There's rewards. There's differences. People have different inheritances. Pretty much all most Christians I know are just trying to figure out how to get the best possible life here and now. How can God help me get the best possible life? What books do I have to read? What DVDs do I have to get? What schools can I go to? What prophet do I need to listen to to get the greatest possible blessing in this life? That's, what, that's not what I think about when I go to sleep at night. Ultimately, ultimately, compared to eternity, I don't care at all about what happens to me in this life. It's not an issue. Really don't care, ultimately at all about what happens to the government what happens to business what happens to the economy what happens to the family what happens to my job what happens to my company <laughs> what happens to my marriage what happens to my bank account what happens to my health what happens to my plans what happens to my vacation what happens to my it's just plain irrelevant compared to the issue of what your inheritance is going to be a thousand years from now, a million years from now. The real issue is how should we live to get the best possible treasure in heaven a thousand years from now. What kind of people should we be? What should our priorities be? What should we be doing with our days and hours and minutes of our lives? Since every choice we make, everything we do will determine how much reward we get, how much treasure we have that is permanent that thieves cannot steal and rust cannot spoil and nobody can take away. Most of the church operates like a business. How much money can we get? How much can we fund? What can we do? What can we accomplish? Now, I thought I was an okay missionary and an okay husband and an okay preacher and an okay four or five years ago. 
But I had a two-year disciplinary faith testing process that took me to a whole, whole, whole different level. Boy, I found out I had a ways to go in faith and in love and in perspective and maturity. There's nothing like being on the edge of death to straighten out your priorities. And you know what? I really think that every Christian should live each day as though it were their last. If this is the last day you have on earth, how are you going to live it? And I've often heard in history preachers say that every sermon should be preached as though it's your last. It's the last thing you have to say before you leave the planet permanently. What are you going to say? And make each sermon have that much gravity. See, when you see out crazy, wild, powerful joy of the Lord and you walk out, you have missed what that joy is based on. You have missed the fact (laughs) that our priority is laying up treasure that will last us for thousands and thousands and millions of years. That's riches. I have no idea why preachers want to talk about money and bank accounts and everything compared to laying up treasure in heaven. Of course we need money. But money is the easiest thing of all things for God to give you. Money is never the reason you can't go to the mission field or you can't do this or you can't do that. And uh, It is never the issue. David Wilkerson was one of the first ones that really agreed with me on that. The issue is not money. The issue is your relationship with God. (laughs) Do you know how thrilled God is with people that make him the greatest treasure and pleasure in their life? In a split second, he can touch anybody at any time. He can put coins in the fish of mouths. He can dump money into your account. He can touch any billionaire. He can do anything he likes. Provision and security and safety, health, and all these things are easy for God. Extremely easy. They are not the issue. issue is laying up treasure in heaven. Now, if everybody's prosperous and and good times are spread out in front of us and life seems long and we're looking forward to so many new, new experiences in the future, 
thinking about heaven doesn't come naturally. It doesn't even come naturally for most Christians. Average Christian is not thinking about heaven. The average Christian is actually getting quite excited by this huge new trend in the renewal and all about transforming this earth and all the things we need to be doing to fix and change this earth. And we're just caught up in just spreading the good life here on earth. But God has a way of changing your perspective. At times when there's prosperity and peace and everything, the talk begins to spread to transforming this world. But in times of tremendous tragedy and persecution and plague and trouble and war, pestilence, earthquakes, tribulation, Nobody's talking about transforming this earth. They're talking about an inheritance that cannot fade and perish. Now, one of these times in history was the the plague in London back in the 1800s. Well, actually, this thing that I was written was written in 1974. In 1874, but the plague was earlier than that. I was in a friend's house in California, and he had a book on the bookshelf, and I happened to just open it up, and it was it was so strong I photocopied it right on the spot. Sometimes people think revivals and the Christianity began with modern day preachers that began with Chuck Smith and John Wimber and, <laughs> and most of you are probably too young to know who they are <laughs> but we've had great men of God actually all through history now this is written by Henry Fish PhD in 1874 he's talking about a time in England of a particular guy named Roland Hill. It is related that while once preaching, he was carried away by the impetuous rush of his feelings, and raising himself to his full stature, he exclaimed, Beware, I am in earnest. Men call me an enthusiast, but I am not. Mine are words of truth and soberness. When I first came into this part of the country, I was walking on yonder hill. I saw a gravel pit fall in and bury three human beings alive. I lifted my voice for help, so loud that I was heard in the town below a distance of a mile. Help came and rescued two of the poor sufferers. No one called me an enthusiast then. And when I see eternal destruction ready to follow upon poor sinners and about to entomb them irrecoverably in an eternal mass of woe and call on them to escape, Shall I be called an enthusiast? Now, when I was working on my PhD with Heidi in University of London, I found out that the worst label an intellectual theologian could give a pietist was an enthusiast. 
It's all emotion. You're just enthusiastic. You're not grounded in truth and thought. And you're just enthusiastic. And that was their criticism of revivals. You know, where people are happy. <sighs> and people are excited. And people are emotional. And people are concerned. And people are passionate. And people care what's going to happen to them for eternity. Ah, oh, they're just a bunch of enthusiasts. They're getting all worked up. A real trustworthy church would be a church where nobody gets enthusiastic. As soon as you fall victim to your emotions, you've lost your anchor, and you're just wallowing in a sea of sub subjectivity. <coughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones in England was one of these, I really, he's one of my favorite authors. But he considered a primary pillar of his ministry to state that the mind precedes the heart. The mind is the rudder of the heart. <coughs> and we cannot let our emotions steer us. We must let the mind stay in control. Now, <coughs> you know what's interesting about that to me in Hebrew literature mind and heart are actually used interchangeably there's not a distinction made as you think so you feel as you feel so you think I found out in graduate study that in theology there's absolutely no such thing as objectivity. No such thing as somebody just walking in, investigating the facts and just deciding on the basis of mental thought what was true and what was not. No such thing as just carrying out a laboratory experiment or doing some research and finding out what's right and what's not. Because even people with as brilliant an intellect as Stephen Hawking, for instance, totally base their conclusions on their experience or their lack of it. And your experience and your lack of it totally shapes your brain. Witness the total illogic, for instance, of evolutionary theory. That is, takes brilliant scientists who spend lifetimes studying nature and come up with totally, totally, totally inadequate scientific methodology or logic because they are forced to by their lack of experience.
They cannot and will not accept a creator. They can't find any links. They can't find any explanation for jumps. They can't find any mechanisms. The only mechanism they've ever been able to dream up is faulty gene reproduction. And that explains why you have two eyeballs and perceived depth. And There's no such thing as objectivity. How do you decide whether abortion is right or wrong? Well, for somebody who's really young or got raped or this or that, you know, they, people scream passionately about what they believe, but it's subjective. Everything's subjective. And if you have not experienced God, everything you think is just going to be wrong. So, I'm reading in this. You know, like last night, somebody could say, Rollin, you're just carried away with just emotion and you're just enthusiastic and you just want to get, ex- you're just trying to hype the crowd and you're just trying to whip up emotions and you're just trying to stir up something that isn't even there. And just getting all enthusiastic. We don't need to be that enthusiastic. We can be normal people. But consider what we're talking about. <laughs> I take joy very seriously. <laughs> really seriously. I take salvation seriously. It's all I care about. First Peter chapter 1. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, for you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, as Kim and Annalise can testify with me, we saw in Mandurah, south of Perth, a few days ago, the daughter of the pastor and his wife, totally caught up in the spirit and blown away. And for hours and hours and hours, all she could say was, I am so happy. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. I am so happy. I'm saved. I don't, I can't understand it. I don't know why God loves me like this. It doesn't make sense. He is so beautiful. He's, I'm saved. I'm saved. She just couldn't stop saying that for hours. It had nothing to do with life on this earth. It had nothing to do with her bank account. It had nothing to do with her boyfriend. It had nothing to do with... 
we need to live in a different reality. Our heads and our hearts need to be someplace else. The Bible says of Abraham, he was a stranger and pilgrim on the earth, lived in tents, he didn't settle down because he, there was a city he was looking forward to whose foundations is God himself. We tread in this life lightly. We shed our baggage. We get rid of everything that hinders. We run the race to win. We're strangers and pilgrims on this earth. We're here to get as many people saved as possible so we can get to where we can really settle down. We don't not settle down here. We're not settlers. We're camping. We're traveling. We're sojourners. We're ready to die at any second. How many here are just ready to die tonight? You're ready. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> How many are not ready? I'm going to altar call right now for those who are not ready. So. <laughs> that happened in Korea, accidentally. I was talking about how great it was to be saved, and I just casually asked, is anybody not? <laughs> Pretty soon people were starting, poured forward and started weeping, <laughs> wanting salvation. <laughs> but that's the whole point. I just want to inform you that if I am lighthearted and I find joy in the Lord, it's because I'm saved. It's that simple. <laughs> now, there was, I just want to read you an excerpt that tells about how people preached when death was right at the door all around them. And this happened during the great plague and fire in London hundreds of years ago. Sober up. <laughs> this is a description of the preaching of the few faithful ministers who stayed at their posts during the great plague and fire in London. These men lifted up their voices like a trumpet and spared not. Every sermon might be their last. Graves were lying open around them. Life seemed now not merely a handbreadth, but a hairbreadth. Death was nearer now than ever. Eternity stood out in all its vast reality. Souls were felt to be precious. Opportunities were no longer to be trifled away. Every hour possessed a value beyond the wealth of kingdoms. The world was now a passing, vanishing shadow. And man's days on earth had been cut down from threescore and ten into the twinkling of an eye. You know, this is, this is when incredible numbers of people were dying of the plague in, in London, all around. The preachers themselves were dying. Oh, how they preached. No polished periods, no learned arguments, no labored paragraphs chilled their appeals or rendered their discourses unintelligible. No fear of man, no love of popular applause, no over-scrupulous dread of strong expressions, 
no fear of excitement or enthusiasm, prevented them from pouring out the whole fervor of their hearts that yearned with tenderness unutterable over dying souls. Old time seemed to stand at the head of the pulpit with his great scythe, saying with a hoarse voice, Work while it is called today. At night I will mow thee down. Grim death seemed to stand at the side of the pulpit with his sharp arrow, saying, Do thou shoot God's arrows, or I will shoot mine. The grave seemed to lie open at the foot of the pulpit, saying, Here thou must lie, mouth stopped, breath gone, and silent in the dust. Truly were ministers in earnest then. No coldness, no languor, no studied oratory. They preached as dying men to dying men in very deed. And what an added power there would be in our pulpits if all ministers preached like this. I'm going to be dead soon. You're going to be dead soon. Let's talk about what's important. And what's important is how you want to spend eternity. What do you really want to do with the rest of your life? What do you want to do with tomorrow? How should you spend the rest of tonight? You know, we've so cheapened the church and so cheapened the gospel and so cheapened what we write about and talk about with our friends outside the church. No wonder they're not touched and not impressed and We are talking about the greatest things in all the universe. Eternal life, total forgiveness, total purity, a perfect God, a lifetime living where God lives, an eternity with the God who created us. When I was 18 years old, I had just gotten a scholarship to the top university college of science in the entire world, California Institute of Technology. I studied hard for 10 years to get in there. It was the ultimate goal of my life. It's the most selective university in the world. They admit exactly 180 students every year. And I thought I had totally arrived when I got my four-year scholarship. I was the, they called me the most confident person they had ever seen. Just self-confident. I looked down on people. I looked down on unsuccessful people. I looked down on ordinary students. I looked down on everybody. 
I was the first Christian to ever apply to Caltech. Well, they had one before, but he went crazy when he was there. Couldn't stand it. And the very day before I was supposed to register at Caltech, the very night before, I got hit by the Holy Spirit. I was up the entire night. I couldn't sleep. The Holy Spirit destroyed 10 years of study. (sighs) Destroyed every dream I had. (sighs) Just destroyed my future. (sighs) Just trashed everything I'd worked for and wanted. Everything I'd ever wanted, he just said, fully on you. (laughs) But he made me realize at the end of an entire night of prayer, that it was infinitely more important that I know the creator than the creation. And I think today, what life would have been like if I had spent my whole life studying chemistry and physics and engineering and electronics and math and all the things that I was really, really loved to study in those days? You just end up with nothing. Now today, there's actually a lot of Christians at Caltech, and there's actually quite a move of the Spirit in those days. Uh, there is now. But I've known some of these guys, and they're still arrogant. <laughs> they still look down on a lot of people. <sighs> they still have a long ways to go, and it's still not the most important thing in life. <sighs> We need to have some Christian scientists. I totally, totally bless them. But I really want the very best, the absolute very, very best. I'm just asking that of you. What is it that you want? Do you want the very, very best? Do you want the best possible resurrection, the best possible eternity? Do you want to dedicate the rest of your life to to? creating wealth and laying up treasure to the max that nobody can take from you. (laughs) Now, I realize that's not as good as a husband with dark eyes and straight hair. You understand why I came to this meeting tonight? I came to destroy your lives. (laughs) I enjoy doing demolition derbies. (laughs) Until everything is turned upside down.
And guess what? If you don't like it or you're not there yet, oh, just wait. <laughs> God is going to shake this world until there's nothing left but absolute, true, pure faith in him. I'm not the judge. I don't explain God's motives. I just know, for instance, that Japan is, was one of the most godless, most resistant to the gospel, most devoid of moral compass, most, most away from God country in the world, practically. The opposite of Korea, which is one of the most blessed and most godly countries in the world, right next door. God's going to shake everything, not just Japan, but the U.S. and, and all of us, everything. He's going to shake everything until only the perfect and the real and the lasting and the important and is going to stand and, and survive. And it's going to be the church's finest hour. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to <laughs> raise your anticipation for the most amazing display of the power of the Holy Spirit that mankind has ever dreamed of. Now, how much work does it take to get to the spiritual place and how many years do you have to struggle and strive to get there? How long does it take to turn into a man or woman of God with your mind planted in heaven, just appreciating God like nobody around God can actually take an ordinary teenager and do it overnight that's why I said at the beginning here I'm just trying to demonstrate that the movement of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with you Nobody even seeks for God, Romans says, on their own. There's not one that does good, Romans says. If you have any inkling of a desire for God at all, that's a gift. But also I understand that how the Holy Spirit works. If you have a desire for God, feed it. Pour fuel on the fire. Throw logs on the fire. Fan it. Protect it. Turn up the heat. Be hungry for more. And as you do that, that is God at work in you. Don't take it for granted. As soon as you take it for granted, as soon as you chill, as soon as you become passive, as soon as you straight line, you have reason to be really concerned that God is not at work in you. You may not even recognize it. Only other people can see it. Well, so, how fast and easy can this happen? I got an email way back in April last year. <laughs> I got it from Australia. 
And it says, I really do long for another dose of the joy, especially when you come back to Adelaide. What a special time that will be. I couldn't agree with you more on how his love and joy truly are one of the greatest gifts. I feel my heart really burning inside for more of that joy and love. It's not just part of life people see, but it's actually alive and living inside of you. You can really feel something living in your very core. There are no words to describe the feeling. It's just so amazing. I find it all hard to comprehend sometimes because it's so amazing and our bodies are often too small to contain it. While walking past some people who have and still do persecute me for Christianity or the laughter, I was afraid and felt a bit nervous. Then I felt a hand clasp into mine as Jesus' voice said to me, I am with you. I knew that Jesus was holding my hand. I just know that was him. His voice is so hard to describe. It's so full of love, kindness, and very gentle, but yet strong and amazingly powerful. I have also been able to determine where there is a good presence and where there is a heavy feeling, obviously a demonic presence. With this one, I know I have to be careful how I say this, but I have been able to see almost beyond people. Rather, I feel that Jesus has opened my eyes and I can now see through people. You can see what's inside and how much the Father aches and longs for us to love him. It's very easy for people, me to have this, and then fall into judging others, so I turn to prayer for whoever I am, for whoever I can. My favorite time was when I could really feel Jesus sitting next to me. It was just incredible. He had previously told me that he was sitting with me and I could feel him right there. Honestly, I don't know how to express the feelings I have inside when each of these happen. I just want to become lower and smaller in myself so I can give all to Jesus. Each experience loads me up with masses of joy. I often feel as though I have so much energy inside and it's all built up ready to just explode out of me. I don't know what to do with it all. I just want to give it to everyone around me. However, they don't always feel the same. (laughs) One lesson I have definitely learned, which has not always been easy, is that when you walk with Jesus, walk the Christian walk, you are all alone. Of course, Jesus is always with you. But outside of that, there are no friends who will pick you up when you fall. They only take joy in that. As I have found friends looking desperately to find faults in me so they can say that I am possessed by demons because I did something wrong. It's silly, but you are really all alone. No one can be there for you all the time. We have to learn to rely on Jesus 100% all the time. There he takes perfect care for you. Would you like to be in that place? I just thought I would do something really, really different. I'd like the person who wrote those words to come up here and pray for you. If she can.
She's a 15-year-old that has more joy and yet more serious of heart. Anybody I've met since Heidi. And I just want to share her with you. Because Jesus is in her. I want her to pray for you. In fact, if you just want at least to just act, really lay hand, pray for you. Just stand up here. Right, right up here. She doesn't know whether to cry or laugh. It's a problem. So. Does God put a lover in here for all of you? I'd like her to be recognized and honored in her own church. you to get the real thing. I just want to show you what it looks like. I told her today, don't worry how long it takes if you can't talk or whatever. This is not a program. This is not an act. This is not a production. Just want you, Holy Spirit, to touch people and and use your little girl that you revealed yourself to. And that email I read to you is just a slight, tiny little bit of what she sent to me this last year. Holy Spirit can speak loudly even if she doesn't say a word. Hungry will be fed. Absolutely no hurry. 
And if, if she can, I'd just like her to impart to you. Because I know she has the longing to share what she has. And I just learned from Jesus who he chooses to reveal himself through. And I don't think I'm the most important person ministering here tonight. I think it's this little teenager here. When people meet you, we want them to meet God. God. God could show himself directly anytime he wants, but he wants to show himself through you. When people see you, they should see God. They should see Jesus. And I'm just... I'm just showing you Jesus here. God can overshadow you overnight. That's what happened to Annalise. Overnight. Overnight, you can be in a totally different world. It's not, a, it's not about how hard you try to get into that place. It's a gift. And we need to come to God to receive a gift. And I just treasure heavenly mindedness and appreciation of our Savior as a gift. Hungry will be fed tonight. The ones God has chosen to reveal Himself will be fed tonight. Right here and now.
If we could just um, quietly just spread out up the aisles, and if you kneel, then that'll allow Annalise just to flow a little easier. So you can spread right around the building if you want, right, right around the back in a nice line if you can, or as much as possible, and just spread out, and then uh, we'll make sure she comes and prays for you. You can stay as long as you like. And, uh, if you could just do that now, then we can... She can get around a lot quicker and a lot easier. Yeah. If she's able to, Roland says, but yeah, we'll, we'll try to make that possible. So yeah, just keep, keep sort of spreading out. Don't worry. You know, God's in the whole house, so he'll, he's everywhere. Um, just, just spread right out and... Uh, You can pray for each other while you're waiting if you want, Roland says. So uh, just prepare your hearts and uh, yeah, that'd be great.
Thank you. 